to the truth in this art beyond and we're back in new orleans the big easy and i am your host rob lee and i'm excited to be in conversation with my next guest musicologist music historian writer radio personality dj uh music curator for the new orleans jazz museum please welcome david cunian welcome to the podcast Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for making the time as we were chatting a little bit. <laughs> and uh, long time coming, I, I got to admit, because we were in here when I came out here initially, and I was like, all right. I was like, are we going to have actual time to do this right. <laughs> between getting shrimp and grits? That's what I come down here for. If I You're a shrimp and grits guy? I am. Okay. If I haven't had it, I feel like it was a wasted trip. Uh, I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. I haven't, I haven't had in a while. I'm trying to think of a good place. The place where I used to go for shrimp and grits that had the best is closed now, but that doesn't mean, you know, there are half a million still other places yeah. you can get good shrimp and grits. So. And as, as a person that, like, I'm a cornbread guy as well, mm -hmm. so I like the very, like, kind of grainy sort of, I don't, I don't like it, like, I don't want it to be spoon bread. Right. So it's just like, look, let's just make it this. So it's something about that granularity that's there. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm a data guy, so I get yeah. down to the, the individual <laughs> kernels of data or corn. Right. Uh, so before we get started into the main, more of this sort of hot food talk, even though we're in a jazz museum, uh, I, I want to give you the space to, to introduce yourself. Um, tell us a little bit about your background and, like, what was the music you were listening to growing up? Uh I grew, um, I'm 54 years old, so I grew up, you know, in the 70s and early, you know, 70s and 80s. Um, I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, which continues to be a great radio town. Yeah. There has always been great radio there. So I listened to the radio when I was a kid uh, and, um, and listened to, you know, the whatever bands were in Boston. Uh, uh, what were the radio stations? WBCN, WCOZ. Uh, and the DJs there who were a hoot. Uh, I still, you know, I still do. I, I, I'm a radio DJ, and I still, you know, use some of their, you know, some of their calls, call, you know, sayings and stuff like that. Um, so I, I mean, I grew up listening to kind of, you know, Boston was a big disco town, so I'd listen to disco. Um, I didn't really listen to jazz or blues back then as a kid, um, but you know, stuff like. Uh, the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, the Grease soundtrack, <laughs> Donna Summer was huge. I mean, she came from, you know, Roxbury in Boston, yeah. so they played her a lot. Um, and then, and you know, and then got into kind of classic rock like everybody else. Uh, and then I don't remember why I got into punk rock. About the same time I got into jazz in my early teens, I got into punk rock and hardcore. Cause yeah. Boston's a big, it's a big town for that too. Uh, and it, um, just and the whole, which in, you know, influences me to this day. That whole do-it-yourself aspect of everything, of yeah. of watching, uh, you know, bands put on their own shows, uh, do their own kind of music that wasn't commercial at all, um, and then, and, and I kept you know listening to that all through you know when, you know, all through the eighties. Uh, when there was the great, you know, very definitive divide of, you know, here's the hair metal and here's all the, you know, what alternative, what became alternative and indie rock yeah. and underground music. Uh, and then in the 90s when that, you know, suddenly became mainstream, which was, you know, a beautiful thing. It really, for a while, I was like, oh yeah, we won. And then, you know, we didn't. <laughs> it's like, wait, all of these great bands are now selling and making money and people are hearing them and influencing the culture. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I, I came up 
listening to. And, and I played piano for a while, um, so that also got me listening to, um, you know, modern jazz and New York jazz and stuff like that. Uh, and then when I got to college, I heard, I started hearing um, New Orleans brass band music, the Rebirth Brass Band and the Dirty Dozen. Yeah. Uh, and that got me into New Orleans, and then I started coming down for Mardi Gras. Uh, and I, you know, then when I got, I was going to college at Columbia, and you know, got out of there and kind of went, what do I do now? Well, I'm a I'm a I'm a jazz DJ, I'm a poet, and I'm a history major, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm a good bartender. So why not go to New Orleans for a couple of years? <laughs> go to New Orleans for a couple of years, figure it out. My brother was going to Tulane, so I came, figured I'd come with, come live here for a couple of years. If it didn't work out, I'd move back to the East Coast and figure it out there. And uh, I ended up um, hooking up with WWOZ and uh, getting a show on there and learning how to do radio production. And then once I learned radio production, I started doing radio documentaries and funding them through uh, you know, local and state granting and humanities and arts organizations. Wow. Uh, and you know, never you know, did about 10 or 12 of those, all radio, uh, and funded them through you know, the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the Louisiana Division of the Arts. Uh, did a bunch of those. Uh, then, of course, the recession, all of that fell apart, and I went back to school to get a degree in musicology. And right as I, about a year after I got out, the job of the you know uh, curator, the music curator for the State Museum and curator of the Jazz Museum came up, and I applied and got it. And I've been here since 2016. Wow. I mean, you just that's the fo- that's the episode, pop- yeah, folks. We're out of here. We're done. Right? <laughs> that's the, that's the life story in you know, the last kind of you know, thirty years and forty years in a nutshell. No, that's that's great. And I, I want to comment on one thing um, that I definitely have to share. That I know I've shared it on the podcast um, relatively recently. I went to um, I look at the way that I approach podcasting in a Mangus sort of way. And so it might be like, I'll throw this brass at you kind of, kind of thing. And um, it, it was one of the things where I was, um, I was at a record, the record store in Hamden in, in Baltimore. And I was like, man, I want to get this record. And I, f- I forget what it may, it may have been. Uh, uh, Black Saint, I said a lady who I have. I don't remember exactly what it was. I, I, I do have it. It's not one of the best records ever been. Absolutely. And I just remember it was like this 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 punk dude there. He's wearing all the black. Everything is just like super tight and spikes, all of that. And um, I was like, all right, cool, cool, cool. And a girl takes it. She goes over there. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to get this. And he's like, it's really good taste, man. Right. <laughs> and for years, she takes credit for an album that I picked out and that she was buying for me. And she's like, yeah, it is good taste I have. I was like, yo, I did that. But it, and, and the guy with the spikes was like, that's a great record. And, and, it, and it's that thing where musicianship is musicianship. Mm-hmm. And people know good records. And I always found that it was something sort of interesting when you talk with someone who sort of has this this uh, this punk background, this punk aesthetic, this lifestyle is attached to it. And then they're into like jazz, which I think uh, a lot of times it's like, Oh, there's a suit on here. I think of like a certain error at a point, and then seeing something that looks kind of like the anti of it. But mm-hmm. there's something that about the sensibility, I think, or maybe how they approach music that just resonates. Uh, well, I always the the circle comes around where you know certain you know punk rock and certain kinds of you know punk rock and quote unquote alternative music. Uh, meets up with avant-garde with, with jazz and certainly avant-garde jazz yeah. in a in a big way where you where you know the guys in Sonic Youth were totally into Sun Ra um, and you know the guys in Fugazi are into you know all sorts of you know stuff like that and 
you know, it's like it, it, there's definitely a meeting point between those two things. I, I will say the other thing about it. Um, the only only records right that I have in my home, or actually, with the exception of like one Toro, maybe two Toro EY albums, the rest of them are jazz albums, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm very I'm very considerate of what I have in my space because you have a limited amount of space. So I can't have like four thousand records in there. It's like this has to be good for the right. here, and it's it's something about it and. I'll say, you know, going to, to Morgan State University, you know, we, me and my dad would work together um, and we would have that station on. And I was going to the school at the time. I was like, man, can you turn that off? I don't listen to this jazz nonsense. <laughs> and he was like, he just gave me the eye roll. And it was kind of like, oh, now as an adult recognizing like, oh no, jazz is, jazz is fire. <laughs> I, I, I have a, an 11 and a 13 year old who are forced to listen to all of this stuff, and they're, you know, they slightly roll their eyes. They like some of the brass band stuff, and some it's kid oriented. Um, but I know, you know, and I'm like, I'm going to get them now, mm-hmm. so that they will rebel like we all do, uh, and listen to whatever they're going to listen to that I can't stand. Uh, and you know, though I like a lot of their pop music, but but you know, they'll come back around when they're 25 and go, wait, you know. That, you know, that crazy John Coltrane stuff that Dad was listening to, that was all right. I like that stuff. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think because I'm very much a taste guy, I know what I like. I think what happened was it's like I didn't like smooth jazz. I think that's what it was. And when I started listening to like like brass band, hard bop, things of that nature, it's like, oh, no, this is for me. Right. This is the real deal. This is, you know, and, uh, again. Smooth jazz is perfectly fine stuff. It's just titled wrong, mm-hmm. you know. And as we all know, it's like they call it because because it's made by African Americans and it has saxophones and it's like oh, it must be. It's like no, it, you know, call it instrumental pop or something because that's <laughs> that's what it is. It's good if you look at it from that perspective. If you don't, it's like this, you know. But then again, as from someone who is trying to, you know. Sell jazz on a on a pers- on a museum perspective, and and the whole idea of calling it jazz is another argument we can have for days. Um, but anything that brings people into jazz and they think of as jazz, even you know, is fine by me. However, you get into it and start liking it and start digging it and possibly going deeper into it. However, whatever your gateway is into it is fine by me. Yeah, yeah. like I think the way that I got pulled in was. It always is a pop culture thing. It's like, how does it get to me? And I, I look at it like, I'd rather have the smoky jazz club late, like, all right, there's some ill repute things going on here. This right. is great. Versus, man, I'm going to have eggs and cantaloupe. There's the jazz brunch. I, I don't want that. That's just the vibe well, for me. That, that, you know, and for rebel, you know, all teens are rebellious. But one of the things that got me into it, of, of it being, and blues too, yeah. is that it what it is still, even though it's more mainstream, but... Uh, it is rebellious music. It is outlaw music. Mm-hmm. Um, and the folks who did it were not mainstream. They were not a part of the culture. And, you know, they, you know, they did what they wanted. They had their own ideas. And, and you know, they did drugs. They stayed up all night. They had all sorts of, you know, dramatic adventures and stuff. Um, and that, you know, when you're 15 years old, that is incredibly appealing. 100%. You, I want to be a part of that. <laughs> I want to be at 2 a.m. with, like, you know, Charlie Parker and, and you know, Miles Davis with a knife on me kind of thing, you know. 
Imagine 15. Then you start realizing that, you know, after a while you go, oh, that, you know, that is a part, an inherent part of it, but not the kind of part you necessarily get when you get older. You're like, I'm not so sure that Charlie Parker shooting up was such a great thing. No, because you know? the, the story ends earlier. Yeah, because, you know, as I, I, I started, now that I'm of this age, I've started noting when I, noting when I have outlived certain, you know, it's like, oh, I outlived Charlie Parker. Oh, I outlived John Coltrane. And that, that ain't good. You know, it's good for me to be living, but it's not good that they're not here now. It, that almost reminds me of this, and I got I got you know, some other questions because that right. one just kind of, but it reminds me of this joke that Hannibal Burris said, and he's one of the reasons I've actually came to New Orleans for the first time. We love Hannibal yeah, yeah. <laughs> His take on New Orleans is so hilarious. And I remember he had mentioned something about, like, I look at, like, musicians, rappers specifically, of, like, where am I at in their age thing, and it's like, am I going to outlive, like, this person? He's like, eh, I'm going to probably outlive Lil Wayne. He drinks syrup without any, like, medical conditions, and I was like, that's really funny. <laughs> He's like, but I'm not going li- to outlive Will Smith. He's like, I hope I do, so I can see that fire fresh Prince marathon. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> <laughs> it, it makes me laugh. It makes me laugh. <laughs> so, so talk about like the musicology piece. Like, what what is a musicologist? Like, how did you know you kind of get you know interest to pursue that as sort of like it's it's, it's a vocation. It's a, it's a it's a pursuit. Talk about like why did you pursue like music as a profession? Musicology. Talk about that a bit. Um, uh, well, people always ask, what is musicology? And I, the way I kind of define it um, for me, and, and technically, since I'm dealing with not classical music, it is technically ethnomusicology, but I call it musicology. Um, musicology is the study of, of everything in music except how to play the instrument. Yeah. Um, so I got into it um, on a historical you know, on a kind of a historical and sociological, anthropological basis because I was doing these documentaries and I would go out and research the history of James Booker and Earl King and Guitar Slim um, and do like we're doing right now. I would would find folks and I would interview them about these folks. Um, And I found that uh, in New Orleans especially, but the stories behind the music and how the music came to be created and the places where it was created and the people and stuff um, were endlessly fascinating, hilarious. Um, and the people who made it, who, who have made this music in New Orleans are the most incredible bunch of, I mean, and I think it's everywhere, but certainly more in New Orleans because it's New Orleans, um, the most incredible bunch of characters you ever heard. Yeah. I mean, you got you know folks like Earl King, James Booker, Ernie Cato, Doctor John. And that's just off the top, of, and that's just the R and B guys off the top of my head. Yeah. You know, when you get to you know some of the trad guys and you start figuring out, you know, I mean, Louis Armstrong, you know, is a is a hoot of a character. <laughs> uh, you know, um, you know, when you find out about Buddy Bolden and what we know about him, kind of thing. Um, you know, Baby Dodds. Uh, you know, all of these guys are just interesting folk and went about their lives in interesting ways and thought in interesting. Uh, way. So that, that's kind of how I got into it. Um, and one thing you find out about researching music in New Orleans is that the further you get into it, the more connected it is and the more interesting it is. And, and you find out about places and people that you never heard of and the, the kind of the history, or kind of not written, I mean, not written out of the history, but just didn't become a part of the history as we perceive it. Um, and then you start finding out that a lot of the early, you know, a lot of the stuff about early jazz and early R&B, no one's really done, a, people haven't done a whole lot of research on. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I taught jazz for a while uh, just at Tulane as an adjunct, and I would tell people, 
you know, one of the most interesting things to me about jazz, it, it just as you're looking at its historical thing, is that, for instance, we know, you know, basically what, you know, Mozart did every day of his life. Mm -hmm. People have researched it. We know where we know where Beethoven was on the, you know, twentieth of February, seventeen, whatever. Okay? Yeah. we know that. We, and, and yeah, but the origins of jazz and a lot of the early stuff is incredibly mysterious. I mean. We don't know. I mean, Louis Armstrong, we don't know what day he was born. Wow. We think we do. Yeah. I mean, we have, you know, he said he was born on July 4th, 1900. There is a baptismal certificate that, you know, Tad Jones found that says, you know, it's August 4th, 1901. We don't know. Right. I mean, it, it, it could be both. You know, we, I, you know, I take a both. You know, yeah. Pops is good enough. We can, he can have two birthdays. Um, <laughs> Shelley Roll Morton, we don't have a birth certificate. Yeah. Um, Buddy Bolden, the guy who most people think is the first guy to kind of synthesize all the elements in the late 1800s, um, we have no idea what he sounded like. Mm. Never recorded. Wow. Uh, we have we have people singing his solos. We have some descriptions of it, but we don't know. Um, and, and yet, this is a music that is now worldwide and associated with America and African Americans and the whole thing that jazz is. But the origins are still incredibly murky, and will continue to be. Yeah. Um, and so there's always there's those elements of it, and there's always stuff that's, you know, I'm always looking out for, you know, figuring out who some of the early folks were and how much more we can know about them, kind of thing. So it's it, so that's endlessly fascinating about figuring out why to get into this. Um, and the deeper you get, the more um, you know, the more interesting it becomes. And yet, on the contemporary level, mm -hmm. um, the music is still. Um, and I'm talking about any kind of music made in New Orleans, but certainly the, the jazz, um, uh, the R&B is the same way, but um, the people who are making it now, uh, half of them you know, are like seventh generation musicians. Yeah. They're, they're a guy like Big Sam. Big Sam's great grandfather was Buddy Bolton. So you know, the Wendell Brunius, his you know his entire film, the Batiste, the yeah. you know the Barbarans, all of these guys. You know, there, this lineage is passed down so that some of the barbering guys are playing. You know, their great grandfathers. You know, they're the guys who invented how to do it. Yeah. Um, and all of these guys learned from the folks who invented actually how to make this music. And you can hear it. Yeah. There's something. There's something incredibly deep and inherent, inherently beautiful about that kind of passed down. You hear um, about the the royalty thing where it's like you, you hear about the Marsalises, right? Yeah. It's just like, oh, that name just keeps coming up. Oh, that's the next generation. Yeah. And that's the next generation. Oh, that's the cousin. That's the nephew and so right. on. And then you start finding out, you know, people intermarry and it's like suddenly it's like you know, the family tree of New Orleans music in general is like, oh my goodness. Yeah. You know, you look at you know, uh, Herlin Riley. Her, his mom was Betty Ann, who uh, was a, a gospel organist and also played a little bit of jazz. Her brothers were uh, Melvin, David, and uh, I'm blanking on the last and and Walter. Yeah, you know, all of whom played traditional jazz and traditional music in there. Their dad was Deacon Frank, uh, who uh, played played drums a little bit in the church in the Ninth Ward. Who was friends with. Uh, uh, Alvin Batiste and Kid Jordan and like you know hung out with Ornette Coleman when Ornette Coleman was here kind yeah. of thing. Knew Ed Blackwell. I mean, I could go on and on. No, but this is this yeah. is it. It's still here. Um, and the other thing that's most important is that you know most other places jazz is a is a part of you know is in the culture and stuff. But here is an inherent part of the culture, and it is still a living, breathing music that matters to you know 
a lot of people here, and certainly even if you don't like jazz, and I've told this to people, you know, people, you're like, when you hear Bourbon Street Parade, you're still going like this and moving the umbrella and, you know, moving, okay? <laughs> yeah. You're still hearing, you're, you're still liking it even if you don't, you're like, I don't like that stuff. Like, yeah, but you know what? When you're in the parade and it gets played, you're listening to it. Kind of. You like it, it's an inherent part of the culture. You, you can't stop it. It can't be yeah. denied. <laughs> yeah, and, and even when you get to like the more modern brass bands who are playing more kind of you know hip hop and and great stuff like that, um, it's still totally informed by jazz and by the previous generations of you know the Dirty Dozen, the Soul Rebels, the Rebirth, uh, the Onward, all the old brass bands. It all comes down through that, and they all know that. So, and, that, and that's one of the things I like to to look at when I'm diving into something, like you have, the, have these questions of how deep do you want to go and when do you head bedrock, when do you know to go further? And that's why I like to peel the onion back just enough to find like, all right, what's the reference? What is the influence? And kind of getting that, that sense and it's concentrated. And if you listen to enough things, like I remember I was watching, I was doing my, I'll tell you about this later, but I was doing my dive into Treve, and I was like, oh, I've heard this rhythm before. I've heard this somewhere before. I was like, what is, what is this? And I'm going down this rabbit hole, right? So this, describe, like, and you were, you were definitely touching on it, at least the sensibilities that are attached. Describe your current work, you know, music curator at the New Orleans Jazz Museum, and talk about the mission a little bit for those who are undipped. Um, uh, being the curator here, um, it's, there's, basically two uh, two jobs. One is curating exhibits, putting together exhibits that showcase um, mainly jazz, but also, you know, the music of Louisiana, yeah. uh, and putting that out there in a relevant, in a way that is true to the history and yet relevant to people today kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, which is not, you know, it, is a little difficult, but isn't that difficult? Um, you know, it, I can easily find connections, and most people can when they look to how, you know, however old the music is, how it is relevant to us today, especially in New Orleans, where all of the kinds of music from Louisiana just about are still being played around here or in the, you know, somewhere along in the state. Yeah. Um, so I'm always, I'm always trying to come up with ideas for exhibits, and I do that with, you know, the exhibits curators and um, my supervisor, Greg Lambusi, is the director. He has all sorts of ideas, and, and it also depends on, you know, what's, how we decide that is kind of what's in the collection, what's around, what is kind of timely. Um, you know, uh, one of the first exhibits I put together uh, was on... Um, Professor Longhair, because it was a centennial, yeah. and I was kind of like, you know, no one's really ever done a fess exhibit, and we really should. We have some of this stuff. I know people who played with him. I'm, you know, it's Professor Longhair, you can't. And it, it's important. Um, and I also feel that as I'm putting together exhibits, it is important to highlight folks who have not been highlighted and to kind of make sure that especially when it's black folks who have not necessarily been featured in kind of culture, cultural, Louis, official cultural Louisiana um, to do, you know, to make sure that they get their due and people start seeing the history of that yeah. um, kind of thing. And Professor Longhair was kind of like, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's the first time that, you know, some, an incredible, but, you know, poor black pianist got an exhibit in, you know, <laughs> the Jazz Museum. 100%. And... I, I like that. I like hearing, like, you know, how that that's that that's a, a focus. 
of yeah. like, yeah, like, is it relevant now? Does it make sense? It looks like, how can this be sold? But also, it doesn't take a lot of work. I like how you describe it. It's like, it's not easy, but also, it can be no, done. Not that, and also, it's, it's, it's Louisiana, and there's no end to people that you can feature and figure out and do exhibits on. It, yeah. it's, it's, it's hard to choose between them. And, and that's kind of one of the things, like, in, in starting off doing this podcast, I told the story many a times that I got this challenge early on. You know, Baltimore is a, you know, not a small town per se, right? right. And New Orleans is, I think, half the size of Baltimore in terms of the number of people. But New Orleans is never deemed as, like, a small town, big on culture, right? Yeah. And I, I remember getting this challenge from a friend when I was thinking about doing this podcast. And the, literally the challenge was, I'd be surprised if you could find 20 interesting artistic people in Baltimore. It's wild, right? I... I I mean, I could probably find 40 in an hour's research, I would think, but, <laughs> yeah. I, but I don't know, you know? But even being in there, yeah. and then, you know, I'm like, oh, I'll take this as a challenge. And at one point, I did like 18 interviews in a week. <laughs> so it's just like, no, you just got to look. Yeah, look beyond. The, how, are you, how are you defining what's, who are the approved upon people that make up what is arts and culture, or to a more pointed point, what is, what is jazz, or what is the music of a place, right? right? And it's just like, you can find it. You just got to know yeah. where to look. And he's got to know how to look. <laughs> and what is your, your sort of rubric and your definition of sort of the curation that goes into it? So when I'm doing this and like putting together this month of interviews that has a focus on jazz music, I was like, I can't not not go down to New Orleans. That was, <laughs> that was, literally, that was literally the thing. Like, what am I? What am I? What am I? What am I goofing? What am I doing? <laughs> and but and folks will say, oh, well, you're doing so many interviews. You know, are you going to be more curated? I was like, well, there is curation. You just don't understand it. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, let me, let me just what the uh, the other half of my um, job is taking care of the archive, which is in the wing over there. Uh, it is give or take seventy thousand pieces, um, photographs, sheet music, instruments, um, uh, records, seventy eights, uh, assorted esoterica, um, yeah. and that is basically kind of you know the the music attic of Louisiana. So it it ranges everything from you know uh, Sidney Bechet's nineteen forties soprano saxophone to uh, Clifton Chenier's Grammy to Tuba Fats's uh, sneakers um, to I want to say we have. Um, Photos of Lil Wayne uh, and um, mist. I want to do we have mystical sneakers. What if I'm mysticals award? One of mysticals awards. But you know the whole entire you know you know Clifton Chenier's crown. The entire range of kind of you know music across the state. Yeah. Um, and my job is to make sure that that we get more of that and it gets preserved and it gets put out there when people need. Oh, I need a you know photos of Louis Prima. Okay, here you know I, we have photos of Louis Prima here. Put them out for whatever news broadcast or book you you know need. So, is there in, in terms of the the items that are in, within the archive, is there one that just comes to mind that has like. That was either really super, super old, super rare, super like this was a wild story of how we have, we got this, and I asked that because I I did um I did this uh, screening of um, a Summer of Soul mm -hmm. and the whole story about how that happened of yeah this was just in a dusty attic for fifty years and then someone yeah. said oh yeah we got we should restore this and then the whole cutting process and bringing all of that together so I'm always interested in like how something gets there it's like uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you two examples one 
that one to, that was the kind of addict story. Um, first, um, we have Louis Armstrong's the cornet that he learned to play on. Oh, wow. That he played in the Waves home when he was there. Yeah. Um, it was it was not his first cornet because he had one before he went in there. Um, but it's the one that you know when he was there and he really figured out how to play. And this was like, wait, this is actually really something I want to do, and this can keep me from you know life on the streets and all that. That you know, even though he still had a slight light up light up on the streets. Um, and we had they had it in. Once Armstrong got out, they loaned it to him. Uh, so that he had something to play and said, you know, whenever you have enough money to buy your own, please return this to us. So within about a year, he bought his own, he returned it to him. Um, it was stayed as being like, you know, the band cornet uh, until Armstrong became famous and he came back and they kind of took it out of circulation. Uh, but every, you know, once or twice a year, they'd bring it out to the band and say, see this? That guy who's singing Stardust and Blueberry Hill and all that, he played this right where you are. So you also can be like him. This, you know, this is what he played. And then when the Waves Home closed, the guy, the band director kept it uh, and he ended up, uh, his widow ended up donating it to us. And when Armstrong came in 65, hung out at the Jazz Museum, uh, Peter Davis, the guy who had it, you know, brought it up and said, here, remember this? And Armstrong is going, oh yeah, I remember this. And he points to the, and you can see this downstairs, he points to there are notches in the mouthpiece. He said, I put those there so it would make it easier to play the high notes or something. And like, oh my God. Wow. Um, so yeah, we still have that and that, you know, um, I still, you know, it's on display, it's on permanent display, uh, but every so often I have to, you know, clean it, pull it out and stuff, and every time I pick it up, my hands shake. Every wow. time. I'm never, ever going to get used to the fact that, oh my God, that's where it all starts, right there. <laughs> right there is where it all um, <laughs> Okay, so that's one, but in the same kind of attic idea, uh, what we recently got into the collection, um, when you go downstairs, you'll see the kind of 12-foot mural that happened that from Dixie's Bar of Music, yeah. uh, the Gonzales mural. And that was in a bar that was in several different places. It was a, a music bar, but it was also in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, it was a gay bar, yeah. um, especially at a time where, you know, you, know, you couldn't be gay and it was, you, know, you could be arrested for it. Um, uh, it was in the French Quarter for a while, and it was before that it was on St. Charles Avenue. Um, and uh, it was, you know, Tennessee Williams hung out there, musicians hung out there, Truman Capote hung out there. It was the place you came. Yeah. Um, and uh, about a year ago, uh, the building where it had been sold, and uh, they were having an auction of the stuff they found there. And we have, and they found the doors, say Dixie's Bar of Music, that were literally up in the attic for 50 years. Wow. Uh, and we put in a bid on them, and we got them, and uh, they're in another storage facility up the street that we are working on getting them conserved and put, you know, we're going to bring them in here and put them up someplace near the mural. I'm not quite sure where. Um, but that kind of thing where, oh, yeah, this was up in an attic for 50 years, and we found them, and it's like, you know. And it, 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 it intersects um, not only um, the kind of music and also... Um, we have probably the largest, the State Museum has probably the largest collection of, one of the largest collections of Mardi Gras stuff, but certainly the largest collection of gay Mardi Gras mm -hmm. um, in, you know, in probably the world, I want to say. Um, and, the, you know, it kind of, inter it's the intersection of both those kind of things, you know, because it was a huge, you know, this is a place everyone hung out at Mardi Gras, you know, and if you've been here for Mardi Gras, the gay Mardi Gras is so over the top, it's in the best of ways. <laughs> um, it, uh, and this, it kind of like, oh yeah, it was a music bar and it was a gay bar and it also was a huge Mardi Gras celebration kind of thing. So it intersects all those three things, so yeah. That's wonderful, thank you. Um, 
So I have two real questions, and then we got the rapid fire questions. Even you okay. get the rapid fire. Questions. Okay, I will. I will take the rapid fire questions. Um, so taking into in account like this really like vast career as you've been and breaking down, and I'm sitting here trying not to fanboy out, you know, as I'm <laughs> as I'm listening. Um, what would you say like a piece of advice you would share with someone who wants to go into you know, they want to do what you do, and there's multiple things that you're doing from the music curation side, from being a historian, from being a DJ, all of these different things. And, you know, maybe a, a, a humble podcaster might be also very interested in this right, answer. Right, right. <laughs> um, all right, piece, um, do it. In the same way of, like, the do-it-yourself we were talking about earlier, punk rock and, and jazz, um, figure out a way to do it and do it. There are, there are it, it's the possibilities now versus there were lots of possibilities when I was when I was coming up doing it but the possibilities now with the internet and technology and stuff vastly more you just have to do it you have to find what you're passionate about and follow it um, and on the whole you have to love it because you're not going to make a goddamn dime at it that's a great answer you know you, 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 have, you know, if you you can figure out ways to possibly slightly monetize it it, it is possible um, but don't anticipate being able to, you know, make money at it. Um, but certainly try to. There are ways, you know, just because it took me a long time and, you know, um, to figure out a way to, like, actually get paid for it. Um, you're going to be doing it a long time without getting paid. But the, the rewards to your soul and your well-being and the spirit, you know, people don't think about this necessarily when they're doing their passions or their jobs. Um, that, yeah, yeah, you still need money to eat and pay your rent. And it's right. harder and harder every day. Uh, but you also need to, to do, it, it helps in your world and your mental health and your general well-being to be doing something you're passionate about and fulfills your spirit. Um, and, you know, so, you know, there, you know, that is worth something. To be able to go home, you know, to wherever you're living happy, even though you're, Three steps above broke. It certainly is also is worth something, and you know as much as you know going to wherever you know your large house and whatever job you you know you are making gazillions of dollars at. Um, yet you get there and you're like, what am I doing? You know, I, I, I you hear you hear so many stories of people who are making in, in that position. You're like, my soul was not fulfilled. I you know, and then you're unhappy. And if you are unhappy and your soul is not fulfilled, your life will be shortened. I, and, and be less meaningful. I, I feel that because you know, like in doing this, been podcasting for fourteen years, been doing this one for four, but this one felt like the natural progression. It's like, what am I being called to do? And I told you the story why I got started, and yeah. I'm invested in these things, and. You know, it's like, this is going to feel like something. And I don't, you know, you hear all the time, oh, you should monetize. You need to have this many downloads and blah, blah, blah. It's like, I don't, I don't care about those. And as someone slides in and they're giving you feedback and you have these sort of funding conversations just to have structure around it because you yeah. still have to have your life. You, you know, I don't want to be those three steps. I want to maybe be four steps away from being right. broke. Yeah. But you, you want to have that sorted and you have just external factors in your ear that are kind of taken away from maybe your reasoning, as I said earlier, maybe you should curate it a little bit differently. No. Yeah. And, you know, I, you, I, I dig that. You can't not be thinking, I mean, you have to have it all integrated. You have to be thinking about making money and you have to be thinking about how it's getting out to people and yeah. all that. But it, that cannot be the overwhelming 
kind of thing. Can't about, be the preoccupation. It cannot be the preoccupation. It needs to be integrated into the whole, the entire whole of the thing. And as you know, not to speak of, but you know, as we get into these periods of late capitalism, where that I, I want to say it's always been emphasized, but more and more these days, mm -hmm. um, of how you make the money because you know the way things are going, there's less of it for there's more of it for everybody up there. There's less of it for all the rest of us. Um, and, and that's possibly by design, but that's another entire conversation. But, but I think it's, I think what you, but making, what you... Making it an integrated part of your world and making yeah. sure that you get some kind of spiritual fulfillment um, out of it is an, you know, will help you in your happiness, will help you make better art, will help you make better history, um, and will just make you feel better, I mean, yeah. make you happier. And, and you know, I think in simplicity is key. And as you you put it, it's just like do it, Fig figure it, figure yeah. the thing out. Yeah. And I think Ask all of that is a part of it. Everyone, you know, find people who are doing what you want to do. And again, it's much easier to communicate with people yeah. these days. Ask questions. Find, you know, ask folks. How did you get into yeah. making podcasts? How did you get into painting? How did you get into all of these things? That might be why I flew down to New Orleans. Right. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm certainly most people then are happy to tell you. I'm always looking for. For the folks who were like me when I was 25, yeah. you know, hungry to find out who Tommy originally was and how he made these music kind of stuff, you know. So this is this is the last real question I got for you, <laughs> and um, you were kind of touching on it a little bit. Um, what's next, really? Like, what's on the horizon in the next, let's say, year or so? Like, what do you have? Like, uh, uh, there, are, um, let's see. Uh, in uh, two weeks, um, we're opening a small version of the King Oliver. Creole jazz band exhibit because the hundredth anniversary of the record of uh, the first kind of really great jazz recordings was la was two weeks ago. Mm. Um, King Oliver, Louis Armstrong's first you know recordings, and King Oliver's first this incre the incredible you know Canal Street Blues and Timbermouth Blues and you know uh, Zulu's ball the Zulu King Ball or whatever that one is. But some of the the er best of the early jazz recordings that are still like you listen to those like oh that's how you're supposed to play this stuff. Um, you know, uh, so we're opening that at Jazz Fest, and then a bigger, ver a slightly bigger version of it uh, downstairs uh, for Sashmo Fest, which is the first the festival here at the about Louis Armstrong, which is the first weekend in August. Uh, and then we're close the Prima Louis Prima exhibit that's been open for a few years is moving to the Italian American Museum in Los Angeles. So I got to work on that, and then October. Uh, we are opening a Thatch Domino exhibit, nice, and Dave Bartholomew exhibit, which should be lots of fun. Um, that that's going to be, I'm really looking forward to that. Because um, the, the Thatch Domino's music, um, we all know it, we all listen to it. But the, the more you listen to it, the more it's kind of a certain way the essence of New Orleans. And there's a certain, it's very simple, but there's a certain mystique to it that the more you get into, you're like, whoa, you know, at least three minutes song that we all know. Um, so yeah, and then um, eventually uh, we are slowly but surely working on uh, the big permanent exhibit, The History of Jazz in New Orleans, you know, starting from Congo Square and the French Opera and street musicians all the way up through Jonathan Batiste, Aurora Neyland, Helen Gillet, you know, all the people here, Trauma and Shorty, all of that. So that's... You know, Christian Scott, or Chris, what is Christian's name? He changed his name, and I want to get it right. Uh, Christian Atunde Ajua, or Chief Ajua these days. But Christian, I, I know it was Christian Scott, but um, killer trumpet player and beautiful music, musician, great guy. So That's, that's amazing. Yeah, so there, there's, there's, there's no end to exhibits to be done and stuff to be found. So. Lots of history and um, 
So shout out to you. Thank shout you. out to the work that's going on here. So I got five rapid fire questions for you. Don't overthink them. Okay. You know how rapid fire works. You, yeah. you, you <laughs> radio guy. Um, what was the first jazz record you owned? Count Basie's Greatest Hits. I'm going to save this last one because I think it's funny. Um, what is the story behind your staff pick in the New Orleans Museum? <laughs> I mean, I, I want oh, to be the one with the sunglasses and the fringe jacket. It uh, is the best thing. I told my girl, I was like, I'm interviewing this guy. She was like, is he going to turn you into a vampire? Right. <laughs> um, the story behind that is most, the idea most people get of be, of when you talk to, you know, a jazz, the guy who is the jazz curator um, is a guy, you know, uh, you know, slightly balding, smoking a pipe, corduroy, uh, corduroy arm patches on his jacket, talking about these, uh, you know, about, you know, how great Pete Fountain, not that Pete Fountain wasn't great, but that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to make sure that image is at least a little cooler, even though, as my wife says, oh, that's very 80s cool. It is. Uh, you know, but it's, it's still, I want you to look like, okay, this guy actually might be kind of different, you know? And there are lots of other, there are lots of other writers and folks who have also, who are curators and historians of music and stuff of, you know, who cultivate an image kind of like that. Yeah. There are a couple of, of like, yeah, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to look like that, you know, slightly stayed and that dude. I want to, I want to look like the cool guy. I was, it was the way he's like, oh, oh, that's, uh, I mean, yes, it's, it's, you know, cool via, you know, 1988, but <laughs> still. That's Wolfman Dave right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, what is your go-to like lazy dinner? Uh, my go-to lazy dinner, um, penne chicken. That's ah, not that easy. Um, la- the go-to, uh, I guess the go-to lazy dinner, um, probably some kind of Asian dumpling. Just yeah. Okay. Form that up. Uh, like New Orleans definitely has signature drinks. Mm-hmm. Do you have a signature drink? Uh. When I'm getting fancy, uh, it's a Sazerac or Chartreuse. My man. Uh, I actually have a part of an entire cult of Chartreuse. A whole bunch of my friends and I, we've been drinking this stuff forever. Uh, um, when I'm not being fancy, it's generally, you know, these days it's, uh, during the, if it's daytime, it's um, uh, flavored vodka and soda. Uh, if it's nighttime, it's Jack Daniels and soda. And then there's, you know, beer. I dig it. No. The last one I got for you, because um, you can either take it as your favorite or is it too often used, but what is that term for you within the jazz lexicon, culturally speaking? Because uh, cats has been thrown around a lot. Mm-hmm. What is the word for you? They're like, I've heard this a lot, or this is my favorite term within the whole sort of jazz lexicon. Um, the term that I cannot stand to, to encompass anything jazz or certainly anything New Orleans is... G word. Anytime you call something a gumbo. Oh no. It is the most over you and don't get me wrong, yeah, yeah. it's it's correct, you know, it is correct and it works because the whole the entire idea of creolization and you know that the gumbo is you know, you take lots of different ingredients and it becomes something in and of itself. Yeah. Um, which is what New Orleans and Louisiana is in general. That mm-hmm. you know there's Sicilian influence. There's, you know, there's African American influence. There's Irish influence. There's all sorts of stuff, and you put it all together, it becomes the culture of Louisiana or New Orleans. Um, but anytime, it is such an overused cliche to say, "Oh, it's just like a gumbo." 
I think I've said that one time, maybe 15 years ago, when it came to a corporate meeting, and I, re- I immediately wanted to burn my hands. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and and also, like, isn't like gumbo like okra? Isn't that like the word or have you? <laughs> um, I mean, it, it, it. I think it. I think the original gumbo. I want to say it's African, and it does mean okra or stew. Yeah. I'm not. You know, it definitely. Go, it definitely. You know, if I. Th- you know, I think if you go to yeah. Senegal or West Africa and you say gumbo, they'll know it's. You know, it's the same kind of thing. Maybe a little, a little more tomatoey, but. Um, it seems like it's a shortcut. It's just a shortcut term. It, right. But but it is a shortcut, easy term, but it does make sense because of, like, you know, lots of cliches. There is certainly a grain of somewhat truth, even, you know, old truth to it that uh, as uh, I, reading years ago as, um, you know, gumbo, it, it becomes something in of itself with all the different ingredients as, as Kalama Yasalam, a great uh, sociologist and historian and writer down here once said, um, he was remarking on... Um, uh, he was remarking on the fact that he was watching the um, the St. Joseph's Day parade. Yeah. Not not the not necess- not the Mardi Gras Indians, but the St. Joseph, the more formal one um, that was happening on St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. Uh, and he was remarking on the fact that everyone was second lining. He said, "Only in New Orleans are people doing." An African American dance at an Italian American parade on an Irish American holiday, <laughs> and everyone's and, and no one's remarking upon it. No, it's just what we do, kind of. Thing. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's really great. That's amazing. <laughs> so that's pretty much it for the podcast. Okay, uh, we got everything, um, but I want to um, at least um, open it up uh, in the last moments here to uh, give you the space. And again, thank you for coming on, but give you the space to share anything that you have, social media, website, um, here, what have you. Uh, the floor is yours. Um, I guess that, you know, uh, please visit the New Orleans Jazz Museum website, uh, nolajazzmuseum.org. Uh, if you're in town, please come and visit. Uh, we've got three floors of exhibits and you know performances three or four times a week. Uh, it's on the corner of Esplanade and Decatur, literally on the corner of the French Quarter in the largest and probably most solid building in town. Um, the building was, before it was the Jazz Museum, was a mint, a fort, a jail. Um, so even though it has, one of our one of our challenges in getting people in to come in is that it's a very imposing building. Um, so we ask you to come in. I mean, it, it's you know bricks. It's huge. It's it's three stories. The wall the walls are, you know, six feet thick kind of thing. It was a mint. It's a jail. You don't want people to get in. It's one of our challenges getting people in. But come by. Um, actually, recently the uh, uh, now that we now have a tornado season in New Orleans, um, there was a tornado warning when I was here. Uh, and my kids and my wife were back home uptown, and the kids were calling, going, "Are you going to be okay?" I mean, you know, they're in the closet and stuff. And, and I said, um, "I'm. There is ten feet of brick between me and the outside right now. I'm. I, I'm in the most solid building, probably <laughs> in the lower Mississippi River Valley. <laughs> okay. Now, I mean, if it's you know, yes, anything could happen, but now I, I, I will be okay. <laughs> um, so I'd say, please come by." Uh, in terms of me personally, um, you know, I my documentaries are up on the David Ke- on a YouTube channel my brother put together for me. So if you ever want to check them out, um, David Keenan on YouTube, there's probably ten or twelve of them, um, all radio. So you know, you got to listen. There's nothing, you know. I'm a, we're, we're old school, you know. Use your ears. 
Uh, <laughs> and uh, I guess the last thing is, uh, I still, I'm, I'm going to be, I cannot believe this, celebrating 30 years of doing a radio show on WWOZ, which is our WWOZ.org, the community radio station uh, for New Orleans. Um, currently, my show is uh, 10 to midnight on Tuesday nights. Uh, they call it The Kitchen Sink, which basically means, I, well, the title of the series, each one is The Kitchen Sink. I call them on the Freaknologist Lunatique Show. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, I get to play basically whatever I want. Uh, so a lot of times, you know, sometimes it's like tonight it will be pretty heavy avant-garde jazz. Other times it will be blues or birthdays or whatever's new or whatever's local kind of stuff. So um, that's 10 p.m. to midnight central time. I'm trying to think of anything else. Um, no, that's all I can think of right now, you know. Oh. Yeah, and yeah, come by the jazz museum. It's all it's it's I it, it, it is your mama's jazz, but it also ain't your mama's jazz. And there you have it, folks. I want to again thank David Cunian for coming on to the podcast. And I'm Rob Lee saying that there's art, culture, and a bit of jazz in and around your neck of the woods. You've just got to look for it. Mm-hmm.